What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, Burn It All Down would like to offer our condolences to the families and communities of the 22 victims of the Nova Scotia shootings, the largest mass killing in Canadian history. Nova Scotia is home to one of our co-hosts and our hearts broke for everyone impacted by this terror. We know that this attack began with domestic assault, domestic violence, domestic abuse, as it often does. If you need support or help during this global pandemic, In the USA, please call 1-800-799-7233 or 1-800-787-3224 or in Canada, 1-866-863-0511. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. Our heartfelt wishes of health and safety go out to the world right now facing the COVID-19 pandemic. We are thinking a lot about those in precarious economic positions who can't afford to distance to stay home or to access health care. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, the brilliant Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, Canada, the whip-smart Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter and founder of the amazing newsletter on women's sport power plays in D.C., and Dr. Amira Rose Davis, assistant professor of history and African-American studies at Penn State University. On this week's show, we ask one another to explain sports things we don't understand and want to. Also, Jess interviews journalist Haley Shapley about Shapley's new book, Strong Like Her. They talk about female strength, the use of photographs in the book, and some athletes across history that Shapley writes about. Before all that, Shireen, I heard there's going to be an NWHL team joining your Raptors in Toronto. (laughs) I can't help but just start out with the fact that I also saw that you were unimpressed with some of the commentary by men such as CBC's Jerry D. Do you, (laughs) you want to talk about that? Okay, so just to respond, first and foremost, to the joining the Raptors, they're not technically going to be with MLSC. The Toronto Furies, who were a former C-Dub team, were part of MLSC, the organization that has the Blue Jays, the the Raps, um, TFC, so the Maple Leafs, of course. So what what I'm excited about is women's hockey expanding. I will always feel of the opinion, and I was obviously a C-Dub fan. You can be a cross-border fan, no problem. But my point is, is that I think that women's hockey just growing generally is a really great thing. I am undoubtedly a PWPHA fan supporter. I love a lot of the players. I'm friends with a lot of the players. But what that means is, is that my support of their movement doesn't stop. And But I will be at NDUB games. There's, there's no question. If a team comes here, I will absolutely 
absolutely support it. Go and check it out. I think that I have a lot of questions about things, but I think that in the way that it's being run, the way that things are happening, there's questions about that. I mean, Digit Murphy has been appointed to, to, to be had and she's, you know, got quite an awesome, solid reputation. And what I'm looking for is stability. Stability is not something that we could we saw previously and that's something that I'm looking for. I want this to be sustainable. I want these players to get what they need. I also want to reply, like reply along with PWPHA and knowing that those two visions are so different from the different leagues and the different players or one former league want to keep continuing with what they want like I don't think that if players feel like they want to join the end up they should have to I know personally I don't after being a fan of this this league and this game most of my adult life I don't feel like they should have to join the NWHL and they clearly don't want to but I still want to help you know support the idea of them getting what they feel they want they deserve Linz what's your reaction here yeah, I mean, similar to Shireen. I mean, I'm excited. I think that this is going to be good news and it's going to give a lot of players the opportunity to keep playing professional hockey and keep working towards a dream. And I think that it's especially good, you know, to get it into Canada. You know, it's not just expansions, expansion into Canada, where we know is a crucial part of women I mean is is women's hockey really <laughs> I mean what do you think of Canada but I hope that there's a future for women's hockey that involves more than just waiting on the in the NHL to step up you yeah. know and yeah. this I respect so much what the PW is doing and which is the PWHPA the players who are boycotting um, professional hockey until there is a league that kind of meets their their standards. And I, you know, I respect them so much and respect the labor movements that they've been a part of and respect how they push things forward. And I also respect the work that a lot of people within the NWHL have done, including I want to give a shout out to Anya Packer, who is a friend of the show and is kind of head of the Players Association in the NWHL. And she's done a lot of important work to move things forward for the NWHL. And at the end of the day, there's a lot of amazing women working really hard to give a future for professional women's hockey. And I think it's exciting. It's messy, just, <laughs> but it's exciting. Yeah, it sounds very mess. messy. <laughs> I, I mean, I think Lindsay and I are being very like proper and diplomatic and professional. I mean, some of the stuff, the commentary going back and forth, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before that I had felt that if Canada and US went to war, it would be over women's hockey. I haven't seen this kind of shade in a long time being thrown back and forth. And quite honestly, it's it stems from somewhere. And I don't think there's, the meaningful conversations that I would love to see happening intra-players necessarily. Like, as Lindsay said, the PWHPA is actually made up of a lot of former CWHL players. It's mostly who they are. And while I didn't see this type of banter, I want to call it banter, not bicker, banter. (laughs) Banter Um, is a word. One word. Banter (laughs) is a good word. I've been very careful with my words right now. I feel like Courtney Cito will hear this and just be head-desking the whole time. There wasn't this type of discussion as openly, let's just say, while two leagues were both, 
in, in session of what we're working. And just to get back to Brenda, your initial question, Jerry D can just but shut the fuck up as he always had to. I will never, I will never ever turn to men for an opinion on women's hockey. Never. Especially when he showed up in the, like literally the third period, like basically an overtime showed up in C-dub and then suddenly like the league shutters a week later. Like I just don't, he was at the all-star game and I will forever be irritated by him because you don't get to show up when you think it's going well and then have it fall down and then pretend you're an advocate. Where the fuck were you many, many years ago when it was needed? Like this, this sport has grown out of off of the backs and the skates of women Make no mistake about that. So I'm never going to wait for men to come and fuck. I just, it, it ends with like, fuck men is like what it ends with. <sighs> I'm, this is so much better than us being very politically correct. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know now now I feel like we, we, we regain <laughs> our, our mojo a little bit. <laughs> Seriously. Tiptoeing is hard for me, Lindsay. You know that. Uh, I know. I, yeah, I know. But I, I feel like we've we've been good. We're already like we're not giving out any cookies at the start of this episode, no. which is good because Shereen's been giving out cookies lately and that's been weird. So, you know, I feel like we're we're back. <laughs> Shereen's back. All right. Back. On that note. <laughs> Okay, so for this week, we wanted to do a segment that Amira had originally thought of called Explain This to Me, where (laughs) we ask each other a sporting question that we genuinely have and hoped that one of our co-hosts could elaborate upon. Lindsay, did you want to start? Shereen, what in the... (laughs) Please explain cricket lingo and cricket in general to me. Well, well I, that was my question. You actually, too. you actually both had that question. We both had the question. Shireen, please explain to to myself and to Amira. Yeah, I can't say this question is a shock to me. I knew that it would come up. <laughs> We've talked about cricket and Lindsay, one of your, your recent power plays newsletter was beautiful. The one about your, your work into just understanding what was happening in Australia and like, I can talk the about the systemic issues in cricket, but the sure. cricket itself, the, the cricket <laughs> itself. And I appreciate this because I just appreciate the segment totally. And Amira, thank you for being its brainchild. Um, so let's talk cricket. Okay. Cricket is played with two teams. Everybody, 11 players are on the field at a time. Cricket teams can run up to 30 players, but at, at the time of play, there's 11 players on each team. Now, every each team takes turn batting, just like in baseball, and, and, and fielding. So the batter, there's a batter, is called a batsman. And the pitcher is called a bowler. So we've got the bowler, and they wear lovely white outfits. Like, this is a huge nod to colonialism. That Like, they literally wear very proper where it's not like in football there's kits and athletic looking they they look like they're going for high tea in some cases well it depends where you go for your high tea like why did i say that that's so extra oh, okay so there's two <laughs> because you're because shireen is back <laughs> so like oh my god who the fuck goes to high tea two batsmen <laughs> we're talking cricket though two batsmen are on the pitch at the same time okay so let's talk about scoring because scoring is imperative so you can do run you can hit a six 
or a four, which are runs. Now, if you'll notice on the outside of the oval, there's like rings that circle and circle the oval. Now, if you if the batter hits the ball out and it goes beyond one of those rings, it can be four or six. It's called out on a fly. It's six runs. Okay. So the, the actual point, and let's talk about what what is the point? What is the point of this? The point. Yes, thank you. The, yeah, the point <laughs> is at each bat, each time someone's at bat, it's called an over. So in, in each over, so it would be kind of like an inning, I guess you could say. And there's no more than six six bowls per batsman. You can't bowl more than six times. So the whole point is to literally literally hit the little wickets. You know that little stand there they have where the batsman stands in front of? The point is to disrupt that. That's literally a point. So what happens is that the fielding team must retire or dismiss 10 batsmen to end the innings. It's always called innings. It's not one inning. It's innings, even if it's just you're talking about one. So that's basically the point. Elimination games are, I mean, there's different types of games. There's World Cup matches, which can go on for days. And then a T20, which is just a one-day match, which we've talked about on the show. So basically, you are just trying to get the batters out and hit the wicket. The way that's done is if the batter hits the ball and you field it and you throw it back, and you can disrupt the wickets, that little stand thing there. That's a very, very, very simplistic, very simplistic explanation of what cricket is. And it's very, it can be very slow, but the T20 matches, which are literally much, much faster, are really exciting and thrilling. It can be really fun because it's a combination of sprinting. It's a combination of, you know, just really intense like intense concentration as well and i think that's something that gets overlooked with cricket and it's it's pretty fun uh, the batsman also tries to prevent the bowler from hitting the wicket and by hitting with the ball and yeah so that's there's a defensive element here to this game as well so i think that's just it's very exciting it's very exciting Sorry, so my my cricket question so i i read and and teach beyond the boundary so I always read about cricket a lot. Mm-hmm. My question yeah. about cricket is very specific. Um, okay. Namely, these matches that go on for mm-hmm. days <laughs> when the wickets have yet to be. I always wonder what people do. Like, does everybody say, oh, there's still four wickets standing. Clearly, we need to continue this mm-hmm. tomorrow. Let's break mm-hmm. for high tea and meet back <laughs> here and resume the game. Or is it like, hey, we're really tired. It's four in the morning and we're still aiming for these Okay, wickets. so for the World Cup, those type of long tournaments that they have, there's only a maximum amount of play that can happen in a day. So they're not yeah, going like to play until the four. Right, it's eight hours, right? Yeah, it's eight hours. So uh, eight or nine, I think it's eight. You're right. So what happens is that they call it, they're expecting. And don't forget much of, and I'm going to talk about the Global South and countries in which that have been colonized, that have taken up, like the West Indies, India, Pakistan, that are really Bangladesh, or and now even Afghanistan has like a really, really good team that made it to the World Cup, men's World Cup, rather, last time. So, and even with the women, you've seen Bangladesh, we've seen Thailand recently at the T20 World Cup. So these countries are so used to this that in a way, 
the society comes to like a standstill. I remember being in Bogosan for a World Cup. Nobody was doing anything. It's like the World Cup of football in any other place in the world. Things just, they keep going. They kind of heartbeat on their own, but people are just so invested into this. So the players go home, they shower, they eat, they change, they um, meet, they strategize, but they know that this goes on. And I, I think for people that aren't familiar with cricket, it's hard to understand when you don't have a set amount of playtime, like how does this work? Like, you know, in football, you have 90 minutes and then you have overtime, you will have extra time, you know, right? But it's the same thing kind of we saw it in tennis where that famous match just or game or that's my actual question, whatever you call it, it goes on and on and on and on. But they know that it's the end result that they're going for. The outcome isn't time-based, it's like event-based. So however long that takes, they're psychologically prepared for Thank you, Shireen. I am going to ask, I get Amira and, and anyone else, feel free to jump in, but I want to start with Amira. I have in soccer or football, often there's like a psychological profile and a meaning that comes with each position. And those might be debated, but they're generally like parameters of discussion. And I know that in football, like North American football overhand or whatever, it happens too. And I wonder about, you know, most obviously with a quarterback, but what the hell with a safety? Like, what is, what, <laughs> like, like, what does that look like? Like, <laughs> why should I care about that position? And if I'm drafting, what do I think about that? Yeah, no, it's it's actually one of my favorite positions in the game. <laughs> it would be. So, so when, <laughs> when I played soccer, we played a lot of, formations but one of the formations we paid most heavily was some combination of like a 5-3-2 and in that 5-3-2 formation we had one girl Michaela Michaela Smith who was the center back and she was the furthest back center back right in front of the keeper and she was considered to be the last line of defense she was the person who marshaled the defense of end of the game and was really like the last person <laughs> who was like the ultimate defender. And for me, when I think about the position of safety in American football, um, I generally think about Michaela Smith. I think about that center back position because in many ways, the safety is like the defensive quarterback in, in many uh, kind of sense about it. They are People, there's two types. There's a free safety and a strong safety. So the free safety is obviously a little bit more free to roam. <laughs> and they're usually tasked with specifically keeping eyes on the quarterback and guessing and reading their eyes and seeing if they're going to throw one way or another. And then they lend themselves to wherever the extra defense needs to be. And so one of the things that happens with them is as the past game has expanded in the NFL. They've needed to be quicker. <laughs> they need to be hard hitters, right? They, it's actually a really difficult position to play because they need to always be on guard. Like they, ha they have to think so fast because the quarterbacks often try to look off the safety, which means they, you know, 
fake throw it one way and then throw it the other way. They try to make sure that safety bites on one side so that they have an open receiver downfield. When that happens, you just see a big pass play where it's like somebody's open or somebody's beating one-on-one coverage. When it doesn't happen, right, the safety is hoping to force an interception, right, where they, they dupe the quarterback or they follow the quarterback size and they're able to read it and cut over to the field where the ball's going to be played. And now suddenly that receiver that looked open is being covered by a safety who's coming in fast, coming in hard, about to lay them out or intercept the ball. And so that's, and occasionally you can also send the safety to blitz, right? Because they are this kind of X factor. So the game, I think now we've seen safeties take on like enormous responsibility because of how much passing happens in the game now. The other thing with safeties is they can be converted up and play up into a cornerback. They kind of have to be like Swiss army knives of defenders. And so free safeties in the game, Devin McCourty on the path, I, I adore. He's one of my favorite. But then strong safety, they're built a little bit different and they have less kind of, they don't really stick the quarterback, right? They are really used to help cover, help defend on the quote unquote strong side of the offensive line. So if somebody's doing a run package or has a big fullback or halfback in oversized running back, and it looks like they're kind of stacking the line in one area, that might be a place where a strong safety would be there to kind of pitch over and help help the line fortify, help the defensive on that side. So they don't they don't play as far back. They tend to be less kind of roamy, less concerned with what the quarterback's doing. And so those those folks tend to be a little bit more bulky. Sean Taylor, right, was like a really great safety who could play both ways. But I think that the kind of psychology or mentality of the safety really is this kind of like hawk. I think of it as kind of like a defensive hawk who is also just one of the most insane people on the field because they're literally in a split second determining where they're running and then coming in so hot, flying around and hitting some of the hardest hitting people in the game and so I kind of think of them as the people who are like a little bit hot-headed in the sense that they have to make a split-second decision and then go 100% all in on that decision and I think that's really difficult to do (laughs) so that's kind of how I consider a safety and the people who may be a little hot-headed maybe a little prone to quick decision making and 100% commitment to that decision you know people with great instincts make good safeties but I think you might have to be a little bit off to excel at that position I think it's now my favorite position thank you yeah I'm just (laughs) dying because when I saw this on the outline I literally thought you were talking about like the safety score like when the quarterback is sacked in the end zone and then I realized oh my gosh (laughs) football is so weird because it has like that's a position right. and then that's a completely different score like I had I didn't didn't even occur to me that you were asking about the position wait wait a minute wait a minute there's a separate score I just understood yeah. stood what Amira said because she parlayed it to soccer so I get what she's talking about basically safety is like a center back in terms of role but they have their own score no no so there's a a scoring play in american football that's called a safety that is not attached to the position at all oh, and that's what a play. Lindsay, okay 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 yeah. i was like oh my gosh we gotta know, watch more football amira because i don't know what's happening right now okay okay 
Okay. Yeah. So if you tackle the quarterback in the end zone, like in their end zone, then your team gets two points and you get the ball. And that's called the safety. Okay. 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 <laughs> it's like an onion. You peel back. Yeah, some, it's just so many layers. So many layers. So many layers. All right. I think there was a tennis question out there. I have a tennis question. Lindsay, if you could tell me love, and I specifically wrote this down. What is love? And not in the song by Hathaway, but the tennis scorekeeping term. Baby, Everyone get watching a lot of credit for that. <laughs> don't hurt me. No. Oh, no. Oh, I thought we might not start singing that. I thought that we might not. How could you think Never that? Mind. How could you think that? Do not that? give Shereen any credit. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> wow, we're still going. <laughs> I'm fasting, okay? Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. Is your question about scoring in tennis in general or just about the love thing? Like, why why do they call it love? Like, what is that? Why don't they just I say mean, zero like everybody else? It's just, it's always been the way. I mean, tennis scoring, my, my theory is that, like, it was completely made up out of nowhere. And then people have since gone back and justified reasons for it, like tried to find clues in history to justify it. But there's probably, I'm sure, uh, historians are like maybe some on our podcast right now rolling their eyes at me um, <laughs> right now for saying that. Um, <laughs> but basically, the a lot of the tennis scoring, the 15... 30, 40 deuce scoring is believed to be medieval French related. And one of those is the zero looks like an egg, which is, I believe, what is it in? in it's a luf, luf, L apostrophe O-E-U-F. So it, the zero was the egg. And then in that was kind of, you know, translated to love in tennis. And then the explanation I've heard for the 15, 30, 40 stuff is that it had to do with using clock faces to keep score on court. Oh, okay. But then because when you got to 60, the game is over, but they wanted to make sure that the game couldn't be won just by a one point difference. So they wanted to differentiate between once you got like, so that's why they went to 40 instead of 45. So instead of going 15, 30, 45, 60, they go 15, 30, 40. And then when you get the advantage, so when you get to 40, you have to get two points in order to win the game, two points in a row in order to win the game. So it'll go advantage like add and then the game will be won if you win the second point in a row or it'll go back to 40 so they change the theory is like they change that to 40 so then on the clock face they can make it go to 50 for the advantage and then back to 40 if they lost the next point or were all the way to 60 if they won the point so i think that kind of makes sense if you think about it in that way but like i said i mean there's also a lot of debate over it but yeah i think that you know, just just a weird game. And it's like, I, you know, it's kind of like anything. Once you start to explain sports, they sound real dumb. Yeah. So <laughs> on, on tennis, on, on tennis still. Now within tennis, there's games, there's sets, there's matches. Which one's which? Okay. So this is a very good question. So you have to win 
so the points are the 15, 40, 15, 30, 40 advantage. Like those are points, right? So you win a point and you'll go up 15 love. And then it, when you get to 60, whatever the metaphorical 60 is, right? So when you win, get to, you know, get enough points in the game, that is a game. Okay. So one, you win the game, you go up like one nothing in the set. You have to get to it's the first person to get to six in a set wins the set. But you again, you have to go by two. So once it, if it gets to like, you can't win the set six games to five games. You have right? to win by so two. Oh, you you have to win that. by two. Okay. So if it goes, that's why you'll sometimes see seven, six, because the rule is now like when you get to six all. So that's, you know, six, six, then there's a tiebreaker. There's a there's a usually it's best to seven points tiebreaker. And so that's why you'll see some scores that are seven to six, right, as set scores. And then the match is either best of three or best of fives. That's best of three sets or best of five sets, which means, you know, obviously you either have to win two out of three of the sets or three out of five of the sets to win the match. There you go. Okay, so what's a game? Tennis game. That's the point, right? You win the points to win the game. That's the that's the set scores. Oh, okay, 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 okay. So they, okay, all right. So like you win a set seven games to six, or six games to four, or six games to love. You know, I always think about it. Shireen is hearing game set match in that mm-hmm. order. So game that was the game they won the point set. Mm-hmm. They took the set and match because it's over because they got the most sets. So that's game the order. Match, okay. Yeah. Game set okay. match. Okay. Thanks, love. That was brilliant. <laughs> I knew it was coming, the British accent. Before we wrap wow. before we wrap up this <laughs> segment, I don't think we should leave without a soccer question. Somebody hit me up. Brenda, why red cards? Why yellow cards? Why cards at all? Isn't it so formal? Like were they inscribed with an invitation? Like why a card? <laughs> why can't you just be like, get the get off the Feel. Invitations to high tea. It's so (laughs) patronizing and annoying. So I actually love the fact that in soccer or football, someone's ejected and you play on without a substitute. So I (laughs) actually love the red card as a concept, which is, you know, the player's now ejected and the other team plays on. You can get a red card for a bunch of nebulous reasons. And that's also hilarious about soccer when people are like, it's not clear. It's like, of course, it's not clear. Everybody, the rest of the world loves this drama. And people in the US are sort of like, you, this is subjective. And you're like, no, (laughs) of course it is. You can get a red card from two yellows. So if you're Mm -hmm. a little naughty twice, you can get a red card. Um, And that's a little frustrating because sometimes yellow cards are given for almost apparently nothing. And so that can be really frustrating. Okay, so here's the thing about that. Red cards are fairly recent to the game of football. They actually were were first introduced in 1966. They were made up by a guy named Ken Aston, who ass is like the, there's an accent on the ass in this case. Ken Aston essentially decided he lost control of a World Cup match in 1962 between Chile and and Italy. It was the last World Cup match that he ever refed. And then he got on FIFA's ref council. And the story goes that he was at a stoplight. And this inspired him to think of green, yellow, 
red. It's literally like the most childish thing I've ever heard from a game that was already, you know, 100 years old and really interesting. And then to explain it to his wife, because this is apparently the most paternalistic man I've ever heard of, he had to, and I can just imagine his wife being like, I really don't need this. He got construction paper and tried to imitate a traffic light. And then he was like, wait a minute, I can do this all the time. So he got construction paper and he cut out a red and yellow card and then he he tried it out. And so it um it came into play about 1967 and um ironically I think it was the Chilean Carlos Caselli who received the first World Cup red card in 1974, but I'd have to check that. But yeah, it comes from Ken Aston. And it really is super patronizing when you sit down and you think about it. But I'm also really used to it. So that's it. (laughs) Well, this has been very enlightening. Thank you for all of this knowledge, people. Now Jessica interviews journalist Haley Shapley about her new book, Strong Like Her. Hello, flamethrowers. Jessica here. I'm joined today by journalist and author Haley Shapley. Haley has a new book out called Strong Like Her, a celebration of rule breakers, history makers, and unstoppable athletes. I really think the audience for Burn It All Down will be into this visually stunning and interesting history about female strength. Haley is here today to talk to us all about this book. Welcome to Burn It All Down, Haley. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to start with you personally. Are you yourself an athlete? Sure, I'll say that. You know, (laughs) like a lot of the women featured in my book are professional athletes, and I'm certainly not on that level, but I've played sports pretty much my entire life from the time I was small, and it's always been important to me to have some aspect of exercise or fitness or movement in my life. So, yeah, I think that I'm an athlete by that definition. But I found in my adult life that I wasn't. You know, I missed having that, those organized sports or having those goals that I'd had when I was growing up um, related to athletics. So I started doing something where I would set a different goal um, approximately every year and I'd work toward that. So one of the things I did was run a marathon, even though I hadn't even run a half marathon up until that point. So I trained for for that. I also rode in a bicycle ride called the STP, which stands for Seattle to Portland. And that was 206 miles. So double century bike ride. And then I trained for a bodybuilding show, which which was sort of when I got the idea for this book, because I was noticing a lot of things about strong women, um, making a lot of cultural observations and personal observations that gave me the idea that there was something here to explore. So I kind of choose something different to tackle. And I'm not sure exactly what it'll be next. But I kind of CrossFit as my base level of physical fitness for right now. And then whenever I choose what I want to do next, I'll I'll sort of at least have that conditioning to go into it. That is fascinating. So tell us a little bit about strong like her? Like, what is your elevator pitch to people about what this book is about? 
Yeah. So Strong Like Her is a cultural history, and it takes a deep dive into the world of women and physical strength specifically. So it starts in ancient Greece, and it goes all the way through present day, making a lot of interesting stops along the way, um, including on the pedestrian tracks of the 1870s, um, the circus rings of the early 1900s, the sands of Muscle Beach um, in Santa Monica in the 1930s, the marathon courses that were not particularly welcoming to women of the 60s, the weight rooms that were heavily dominated by men in the 70s, um, and then up through today in the soccer fields and gymnasiums where women are showing just how powerful they really are. Part of what is so wonderful about this book, and it's hard to get this across in audio, but I just want to be really clear about this, are these beautiful photographs by Sophie Holland in your book. And I wanted to ask, they're portraits of athletes. Um, How did you end up deciding to do something so photograph or image heavy? Like, why did you end up choosing that format for this to go alongside this cultural history that you've written? And that that idea actually came from my editor. When she was interested in the proposal for this book, she set up a call and asked how I would feel about having photos to go with it. And I said, I would feel amazing about that. That would be great. It it can be hard to get a photo budget for a book. Yes, incredibly hard. Yeah, especially a book like this that's not, you know, that is a a full-length narrative. So she had that vision from the beginning, and I loved that. And then we kind of worked together to identify the right photographer. And Sophie Holland, um, who you mentioned, ended up being the perfect choice. Her photos. She's really experienced with shooting movement. And the photos, they really each tell a story about the athlete that just complements the information that is, you know, the story about the athlete so well. So, and her work is is very beautiful. So yeah, we brought her on board and she understood the vision right away. And that was, it's always exciting when somebody understands what what's kind of in your head and can translate that in their medium of choice. So it was a dream collaborating with her. It was challenging. It was kind of like putting a a puzzle together. I started with the, a very long list of sports or athletic endeavors that I really wanted to portray. And it was important to me to have some underrepresented sports in there. For instance, like strong woman, I think, that is an amazing sport. And a lot of those athletes aren't known outside of the strong woman world. So I really wanted the kind of the strength sports to be represented along with, as you mentioned, some of these other complementary things like fencing and um, ice swimming and other sports that we don't think about as much. And then you'll see a basketball player in there and uh, some more traditional sports that people grew up playing. So I had this long list, and then I had a list of people within each of these disciplines, and I just started contacting them and seeing what I could schedule. And at first it was, you know, I didn't have anything to give them at that time. I only had my idea and the Hmm. promise that this book was going to be a thing (laughs) one day. So I just was hoping that people would buy into this idea of celebrating women in physical strength. And I was very fortunate to get the collection of 23 women that we feature in the book. That's so cool. So the subtitle is a celebration of rule rule breakers, history makers and unstoppable athletes. And I am struck by and I really enjoy that you have a 
what I consider an expansive definition of athlete. There are ballet dancers, someone that's a flexibility enthusiast, an ice swimmer. There's a martial artist included. These are the people that you photographed for the book. How did you land on your definition of athlete that you use in this book? Well, I think there isn't only one way to be strong or one way to be an athlete. So one of the ideas I talk about in the book is this uh, concept of being ladylike and how women were so constrained by that. So I'm all for having definitions that are more expansive and more inclusive. And, you know, one of the definitions of ladylike is actually lacking in strength, force, or virility. So when people who ascribe to this line of thinking are presented with a woman who is obviously strong, they either denigrate her accomplishments or denigrate her womanhood. And we see that with someone like Serena Williams, who is so obviously a talented athlete that people go after the way she hits the ball, calling it manly or or the tennis dresses she wears or whatever in some sort of effort to discredit her ladyhood. So back to your question of this idea of what is an athlete? I just wanted to be, I don't want to have such a a constraining definition of it. I think it can be a lot of different things. But I would like to also hear a little bit more about your writing in the book. I thought it'd be fun if you could tell us about two or three of the athletes. I know you wrote about so many, but some two or three of the athletes that you write about in the book, like what kind of stories are our readers going to read about when they pick up strong like her? Yeah, there are a ton of different stories. And there are stories about athletes, both historical and modern day, as as we've been talking about. These 23 portraits each come with a bio of the athletes. So I think um, historically, one of the interesting athletes that people might not be familiar with is named Ada Anderson. And she was a pedestrian in the 1870s and 1880s. And pedestrianism is a sport that we don't talk about a lot today, but back in the day, it was the America's first spectator sport. And what it involved was walking a really long distance. And this could either take place from like point A to point B, so maybe from Chicago to New York City, or it could take place around a track. And sometimes these walkers would be head-to-head against someone, or sometimes they would be alone just trying to get to a particular goal. So Ada was one of the best, and she had uh, kind of come up in the UK through the ranks there and had you know, accomplished all of these amazing feats there and then wanted to break into the U.S. pedestrianism market. But when she came over here, she had a goal of walking 2,700 quarter miles in 2,700 quarter minutes, which is about 685 miles, I think, in the span of about a little under a month. And what is remarkable about this is once she finished walking, you know, the quarter mile within 15 minutes, which is not a difficult thing to do. She had the rest of that 15-minute block to rest but or eat or whatever, but that was it for almost a month. So every time she slept, it was in those little chunks just a few minutes at a time. Wow. Uh, and that took an incredible amount of, of training. Um, you definitely have to be a polyphasic sleeper to succeed oh at gosh. this sport, which is when you can 
get your rest in little small chunks as opposed to in bigger stretches like most of us need. Wow. So yeah, I'm like, I would fail miserably at that. Oh, so, no. <laughs> it sounds awful, right? And it does think sound about, awful. <gasps> think about the shoes back then too. They were not, they're not what we have today. And so the blisters that she got oh, were And was she wearing horrible. a dress? Yeah, she usually no. was. But she actually, yeah, she was wearing a dress, but sometimes she showed her knees, which she was oh, known oh for, which was quite scandalous. And I, I like her. She had a lot of spunk and she she didn't Did care. she do it? Did she do the month-long thing? You're going to have to read the book to find out. Oh, that's a good one. Good one, Haley. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yes. So then, yeah, she really kind of wasn't afraid of breaking those kind of cultural norms. So I enjoyed her. I also interviewed Catherine Switzer for the book, kind of fast forwarding a little bit in history uh to the 1960s and 70s. And for those who don't know, Catherine was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon with numbers on her, you know, as an official participant. And um, there's a series of iconic photos of the race director trying to pull her off the course. And she finished anyway. It was kind of a traumatic experience. She didn't realize that it was going to cause this much controversy. But Catherine really took on a role of getting distance running to be accepted for women. Um, At the time, the Amateur Athletic Union only allowed women to run an official race distance of one and a half miles. So, you know, and this is in the late 1960s, which is wild. So she was on the front lines of promoting running among women and then eventually getting the marathon distance added to the Olympics for women, which happened in 1984. And what's cool is that she continues today to promote access to athletics around the world. She has a foundation and works to kind of connect women through running. So I really enjoyed speaking with her and she's someone who's accomplished so much. So it was really an honor to have a a chance to chat with her. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. If you haven't seen the pictures, you should go see them. You probably have. And didn't she have um, her boyfriend was running with her and he like body checks the guy, the exactly. race director? Yeah, good... he, was a yeah. Hammer, he was a hammer thrower. So he was a big guy. Yeah, he was guy. a big dude. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and good for him. So then she was afraid while she was running that he had really hurt this, this mm. race director because when you get body sure. slammed by a 235-pound guy, like bad things can happen. Oof. So there were a lot of conflicting emotions running through that whole situation. But the fact that she turned it into a positive force is, um, I think, an example that we can all learn from. Yeah, that's great. What do you hope that readers take away from your book? I hope that it gets people to think about strength in a different way. Um, It's not just a luxury for people who have time to go to the gym, uh, but it's really a fundamental right. And I hope that they learn something new about the connections between physical strength and the other aspects of our lives, which is something that I go into in the book, how, how it affects you know, our well-being from a holistic perspective. And I, I hope that they learn something about the female trailblazers who've come before us, because this was just kind of a little snippet of the fascinating stories that they have. That's great. Where can our listeners find your book? 
It is available wherever books are sold. Right now is a great time to buy from an indie bookstore, and many of them are offering free shipping. Um, They're still shipping from their warehouses, so I recommend that people buy from their favorite indie bookshop. Perfect. And where on the internet can our listeners find you? I am at HaleyShapley.com, and I'm on Instagram at HaleyShapley and Twitter at the same. And if you go on my Instagram, you can see some of the outtakes from the photo shoots we did. So we had so many beautiful photos that there's an extra photo of each athlete. And I'll also be posting some behind the scenes shots from the photo shoots. So kind of just a little extra bonus material there for you. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you again, Haley, for being on Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. All right, everyone, go get strong like her. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, The Burn Pile, where we take all the things that have happened around, not in sports right now, and (laughs) throw them on a giant metaphorical incinerator and just let them burn. Shireen, do you want to start? Oh, yes. So... I'm mad this week at a former Montreal Canadian player and because he's horrible and we know that I don't have loyalty to teams when their people are garbage. Brandon Proust is no exception. Brandon Proust, I'm burning him metaphorically for being a ragey racist mansplainer, being misogynistic troll on Twitter. What happened was there is a very... Uh, formidable and really interesting, brilliant person on Twitter. And her name is Kelly Wickham Hurst. And she had a tweet um, and it was our, our retweeted by Judd Apatow and lots of followers Judd Apatow has clearly. So now what ended up happening was her tweet was basically calling out white folks for being racist. So what Brandon Proust decides to do is like, go at her. And also, he's Brendan Proust, just so you know who he is. He's very, he, he retweets Barstool all the time. That's kind of where he gets his information from to, to let you know that level of debauchery that he follows this news. So what ended up happening is Kelly blocked him, but then he literally went to another platform to find her. He went to Instagram. He went to other places just to try to message her because he was so angry she wouldn't reply. Now, this story gets even more ridiculous, is that friend of the show, Jashvina Shah, who we've had on before, she tweeted at him as well. And he literally replies to her, and this is something I'm never going to recover from. He replies to her and goes, she was racist. He accused Kelly Wickhamhurst of being racist. Now, you want to clap at this man and say, reverse racism doesn't exist. But he still thinks it does. And in his defense, when Jashvina was sort of, you know, was bantering, not bantering, she was literally going at him. He says, well, I watched Hidden Figures and I cry every time. So this is the man who thinks that because he watches Hidden Figures. Now, I just want Janelle Mone to go at him is really what I want. Her, like, can you imagine this man thinking because he watches Hidden Figures, he's like an ally to black people? So he's horrible. And like, I just, I will never, I will never recover from that. Like, it was just the most, it was the most ridiculous exchange I've ever seen. So thank you on the one hand, Brandon Proust, for being so pathetically racist that you made me laugh in what was a very difficult week. But secondly, you're terrible. And because you watched movies 
You don't deserve Octavia Spencer. I just keep hidden figures out of your mouth. Also, reverse racism is not a thing. Also, my gosh, like, I want Terrence to go at, like, I just want her to, ugh. Anyways, I'm so upset that he talked about hidden figures. I'm also very angry he thinks reverse racism is a thing. Unlearn your shit, because you are shit. Just want to put him in the burn pile. Burn. 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 Lindsay. Yeah, well, speaking of bad men saying dumb things, which is <laughs> the alternative title to every burn pile, I feel yeah. <laughs> Subhead. <laughs> Adam Schefter, ESPN's NFL reporter. We it is the night of the NFL draft. This is last Thursday. And Schefter, once again, who reports for in the NFL on ESPN, um, which is gonna be a very important moment, tweets for the first time in what feels like forever, a real live sporting event. Now, some of you might know that <laughs> just six days prior on the very network that Adam Schefter works for that cuts his paycheck, the WNBA draft was held on the exact the exact same network. He didn't even have to switch channels <laughs> produced <laughs> by a lot of the same people that were producing the NFL draft. So obviously there were people pointing this out to him that there had actually been a live sporting event, if that's what we consider in a draft, <laughs> you know, just a few days ago, he decided to, quote, unquote, apologize. <laughs> but his tweet said, my apologies. So he forgot the L in apologies. <laughs> and I just have to give give a shout out to a friend, uh, Curtis Zimmerman, who said, this is what I will call all shitty apologies from now on, <laughs> apologies. <laughs> So he's, his, his tweet said, my apologies to anyone who was offended was caught up in the moment of the NFL draft and forgot about the WNBA draft from last Friday night. Sorry. Uh, that is not a good, that's not even a good apology. That is <laughs> shit. <laughs> Literal shit. Because what you're saying is I was caught up so much in this thing that matters to me that I forgot that women sports exist and count as professional sports. And, you know, the reason this is so frustrating is because it's emblematic of the way a lot of people feel. Adam Schefter has a huge platform and people like Adam Schefter treating the WNBA with even the most basic of respect could go a long way. And instead, he decides to completely forget its existence. It's disrespectful to the network he works for. It's disrespectful to his colleagues. And it's disrespectful to women as a whole. And I do not accept his apology. And I would like to burn that shit. Burn. 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 Amira. Yeah. So <laughs> speaking of the draft the ESPN the draft was very much an opportunity for ESPN to kind of double down on what they love to do during draft anyways um which is tell stories that fit ideas about poor broken black players who are saved by football or overcame all of this tragedy to make it to football and that's not to say people didn't overcome a lot. That is certainly true. 
your girl Mateos from Penn State just got drafted. He has a lot of tragedy that he overcame, but that is not all of the story for a lot of people, especially when you have four bullet points to say anything about their background in the process of drafting them. It's like when the Olympics try to do these little video packages, but if they were half-assed and completely without context. And this is how we get to my burn. When uh, T. Higgins was drafted, Clemson wide receiver, as he was being drafted to the Mangles, they threw up uh, a graphic. Four points. Hometown, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Finalist for Mr. Basketball in Tennessee and offers to play basketball from three schools. His sister played basketball for Middle Tennessee State. And the fourth thing that was super important for them to include on this graphic, mom, Camila, fought drug addiction for 16 years. Like, have some damn sense. It's very clear to me, there's an interview that he did at length um, earlier this year where he talks about how inspirational it was watching his mom overcome her addiction. She's been clean um, for a while now, uh, 12 years clean. And he credits her with uh, why he plays football and how she kept insisting on him staying focused on football and how he wants to help her live her best life and is excited to do that by the resources he's getting at the next level. I understand how that feels like one of these package stories you want to tell. But the problem is you actually have to commit to fucking telling it and not devoid of context in a two-minute clip, in a two-minute moment, put up a graphic about his mother's drug addiction. And the most important context of that was A, the inspiration, but B, that she's been clean for 12 years. So you don't put up a fucking graphic that says, oh, she's battled this addiction for 16 years. Like, it's it's disgusting, but it's completely typical. My favorite meme that came out of the draft was that meme of people, like, throwing off their headsets and, like, grimacing. And it's like when ESPN producers find out that somebody grew up in a loving home with two parents, right? Because it almost feels like at this point they're fishing for inspiration porn. And it's just ridiculous because that doesn't actually make you quality TV. It doesn't actually give depth to your program to be able to offer these packages. I know that you're trying to follow this model that NBC put out with the thing. I know that you're trying to do this and you're trying to fill time. But this is also what happens when you stretch out draft for so long. And then when you Compare that with the fact that the WNBA was squeezing in and so you barely got any stories at all. And then you see that the, with more time for the NFL draft, what do they decide to do with their more time? Put up shitty ass graphics like this to try to continue to pathologize black players who are coming into the league. Like it's really, it's, it's on brand and that brand is disgusting. Burn it down. Burn. Burn. Speaking of bad brands. My burn this week. You like how I teed that up for you? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. My burn for this week is uh, someone else who was drafted uh, now, the Patriots new kicker, Justin Rowasser. I don't want him. Throw him back. Yeah, you don't want him, Mira? I wonder (laughs) why. It's a real. Is this the one that that the dog picked when Belichick's dog was just sitting there? If only we could blame the dog for this pick. Okay, I try. It's a real head scratcher. So almost right away after the draft, it was pointed out that Roeser has a 
tattoo on his left arm of the symbol that is the symbol for the three percenters. And the three percenters, for those of you who are lucky enough not to know, is a very far right militia group. And the three percenters have been identified as an anti-government organization by the Southern Poverty Law Center. So it's not like, you know, just a like sort of guess. When asked about it, Roeser said, quote, I got that tattoo when I was a teenager and I have a lot of family in the military, end of quote. So dumb fuck. The three percenters are anti-government militia group that would fight the military. (laughs) Okay. So like, so you're dumb and you're racist. And then he says, and, and you know exactly what, what it fucking means. Of course, like, don't, of you, course. that's bullshit. Like you, you like you. And the worst is when the media calls it controversial. It's not controversial. It's a racist <laughs> hate group. It's a racist hate group. That's not controversial. That's terrifying. <laughs> it's terrifying. And you permanently put it on your body. Not because you didn't know. Of course you knew. And I don't like that he says, when I was a teenager. It's like, that was like two years ago. Okay? So whatever. (laughs) That's recent. And then on top of it, and this is just the last thing, and it makes me so angry. He says, uh, quote, it will be covered. It will be covered. Okay. Take it off. Take it off. (laughs) There are these things called tattoo removals. And now that you're going to make a lot of money, If you were really sorry, you would stop evading the fact that you did something that was racist and hateful shit. But then on top of it, you would get it off your body, young man. I mean, jeez. It's not going to happen. He literally just gave a lecture about Jordan Peterson. He's like, I can't wait to do this more. Like, he's the most, he's just, he like worships Iron Man. Like, I just, I really feel for the black people in that locker room. And I really hope they fuck him up. Sorry. Sorry. Me too. I mean, all I could think of was like the season can't start fast enough to put him out. <laughs> like, please don't let anybody forget this. And I know that's terrible to say, but there is just a part of me that's just like, oh, so I want to burn this real bad. So burn. 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 After all that burning, it's time to celebrate Badass Women of the Week. I would like to note that we are recording on April 26th, which is Lesbian Visibility Day. We'd like to shout out all of you that have inspired us and that we love and that make sport a better place. Honorable mentions go to Neil Ivy, who is named head coach of Notre Dame and has already landed her first high-profile recruit, Olivia Miles, who is the number two ranked recruit in the class of 2021. The first woman NFL executive to announce an NFL draft pick, Donna Ponte. Susie Maxwell-Burning, one of six women to capture the U.S. Women's Open at least three times, was elected to the World Golf Hall of Fame. Basketball player WNBA Mystics, Natasha Cloud, for repping all of us with Twitter trolls when a silly journalist said that WNBA is a as a pro sport, is not in the same league, and then she challenged him to come and play her. (laughs) Canadian figure skater Joni Rochette, who won a bronze medal in Vancouver 2010, just days after her mother died from a heart attack, 
has received her medical degree from McGill University and will start working on the front lines of COVID-19. And she has requested to work with geriatric patients in long-term care centers. And now can I have a drum roll, please? A really big one, because we have two. Our badass woman of the week goes to both Anne Muffet McGraw and Sanamir. Muffet McGraw, the Notre Dame coach who served as the head of their women's basketball program from 1987 to 2020, had compiled a 905 to 272 record. Wow. And we say goodbye to the career of Pakistani cricket legend Sana Mir, a 15-year international career. She announced her retirement. We are super excited to see what's next for both of these women. So congratulations. In very dark times, we'd like to focus a little bit on what's good in our world. Linz. Okay, so I know I'm not the only one who wants to talk about this, (laughs) 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 but I actually have not been watching like many of these like Instagram live streams. I usually just like when I'm not working, I want to just be like completely zoned out from everything. But last night I decided that it was Megan Rapinoe and Sue Bird interviewing Diana Taurasi and on their Instagram live show and I decided to watch it and then I watched four hours of it and Penny Taylor (laughs) joined and it was the most phenomenal joyous entertaining four hours of quarantine I had I felt rejuvenated And I'm a little tired. Thank God Penny Taylor finally ended yeah. it. So Penny, Megan, Megan got so drunk that someone on live said she was talking in cursive, which is the funniest thing I've ever heard. And it was very true. She totally could not hang. She went um, and like left. The, she got hiccups, which was really embarrassing. And then she passed out like with still an hour to go and it was finally penny who was like we have a child who's gonna wake up at 5 30 in the morning we have to stop this and i think we were all a little bit glad for penny because i think it would have gone like sue and diana were like oh but it was so funny because even when penny said that both d and uh (laughs) sue were like does that mean we have to say bye like i don't understand like are we saying and penny had to explicitly be like yes good night (laughs) yeah and you had a feeling that was not the first time penny has done that but it was joyous it was very gay and loving and about lesbian visibility uh, there were plenty of hot takes and yes as amir pointed out is the lesbian day of visibility and what a way to kick it off yeah yeah i my favorite part was i i think that i said on the show when i started watching their ig series a touch more what really wrote me in was sue telling this story about her and megan's like first trip together to hawaii where they vacationed with penny and diana tarasi and she tells the story about how that's where they learned that megan cannot drink with yukon players and she could not <laughs> hold her own and she told this story over and over again where she was saying she's just little guys she's just little and and so by our like three-ish of this ig live where it was very clear that megan was slurring and could not hang and sue was like completely (laughs) chill still 
she, they were like, "Oh God, it's like Hawaii all over again." <laughs> it was it was so, the, good. It was so and funny, it got, and also just the range <laughs> of the chat. I mean, they went from talking about over playing overseas to like going deep on political stuff like you know diagnosing what's wrong with democrats my favorite part is Diana Taurasi, what's wrong with democrats they're just little bitches <laughs> like they're punks and like it was glorious and then you know they evaluated this year's draft class sue bird said kennedy carter would be the best player that came out of this. They shout out Satu. It was it was really great. They talked about shoes. This is just like so wide ranging, and they said multiple times, "This is what they do at restaurants. They like shut down restaurants." And it's I literally I kid you not like to have happiness in my life. Maybe like two days ago was on YouTube doing the thing where I'm like, "Who I want to see people interact," and I literally like super Diana Taurasi because I love when they do interviews together. It's magical to watch a friendship that has evolved over so many years. And I just looked up and I could never have imagined that this would be as glorious as it was. And they both talked about what it was going to be like to transition out of basketball and how much they a, hate that question. But Diana Taurasi wants to own a team. She was like, fuck this. I don't want to be a coach. I don't want to work. Like, I want to own it. And it was, I encourage you all to go watch it. It'll be up on Sue's IG for <laughs> 24 hours if you want to watch four hours live. Um, but what else there is there to do? So yeah, that's totally my what's good. Oh, and The Outer Banks on Netflix because... Okay, now I feel bad for sleeping last night. But sleeping is also what's good. Uh, I've been sleeping like crap, and so I'm really grateful the last couple of nights have been okay. I know this sounds really weird because I have real problems with Hope Solo, but sometime, somehow her having twins made me really happy. So that's that's part of... I want Hope to have happiness. That's fine. We can- yeah, I, I, I don't know. Her little cute the pictures baby pictures anyway um also i think i'm getting a cat so that's what? yeah yeah i what? i yeah i was approved for cat adoption which i can't tell you how proud of myself i was that my references came through i know those of you who don't know me might not understand this but it might not have been a shoe in but <laughs> <laughs> but but it turns out i passed <laughs> And so I'm really excited. And now I'm looking a lot at cat pi- pictures as every middle-aged divorcee um, <laughs> cliche is. So I'm into it. I'm embracing it. And um, my kids, my kids are always good. They've been doing a lot of karaoke, which means they're sort of mining 80s music. And I'm loving that because they also like to dress up and do it. So like, you know, all the eye makeup of Scandal and Warrior and stuff like oh, that. Wow. So it's very... Wow theatrical and fun. Shireen, what's good for you? Well, Ramadan has started and it's been really fun. It's been a really, been a rough week in terms of, you know, what happened in Nova Scotia. That was really rough. And then there was a beautiful concert online and a tribute, like an online vigil, I guess you could say, but the way that Maritimers share their grief is through music. So it was, it was really beautiful. Natalie McMaster, if any of you are familiar with the East Coast, you know who Natalie McMaster is. And she actually found a video of one of the victims who was playing this tune on her fiddle and played that clip and played along with her. I just, it was probably one of the most harrowing things I've ever seen in a tribute. 
So that was like, that was incredible. And just shout out to everybody out there. I'm just trying to make it through the week and just going, forget the week, make it day by day. On that note, the community that I'm a part of called Rabata, which is like a Muslim women's organization, which really seeks to amplify Muslim scholarship, women's scholarship. They're doing online iftars, which is really fun. And to be part of that community and growing online communities has just been really great. There's a woman named Angelica Lindsay Ali, and I'm taking a class with her every Saturday in the month of Ramadan. And she's a scholar as well. And she's like this black Muslim woman who's so smart. And she calls her, she's a sex act, a sexual health educator. She calls herself the orgasm oracle. And I'm like, that enough is making me take your class. Um, she's fantastic. I suggest people check her out. Last but not least, Jessica did tweet about this. I came really late to the Schitt's Creek party, which is which is embarrassing for me because I think, you know, Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara are prophets of Canadian comedy. Like, they're hilarious. I have been loving this show. I have cried pretty much every episode. It is one of the most beautiful things. So beautifully done. There's small jokes in there, references to Canada, but just... It's so heartwarming and lovely and about small community and like benefits in that and acceptance and and love and so many things that I'm just, I'm on season six now and I'm like literally texting the Biad group going, oh my goodness, this has happened, this has happened. And, you know, I, I don't want to spoiler it, but when Patrick and David went on the hike, I didn't realize what was happening. And then I realized what was happening and I just, I just couldn't. I just couldn't. I was like, oh my goodness. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to balance like, you know, my worship for Ramadan while binge watching Shits Creek. So I love all of it. All of it. So that's it for this week and burn it all down. Though we're done for now, remember, you can always quarantine with our fabulous array of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, and bags. What better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media by getting something with our enraged faces on it? You can check it out at teespring.com backslash stores backslash burn hyphen it hyphen all hyphen down. <laughs> burn it all down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We really, really do appreciate your reviews and feedback. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. You can email us at Burn It All Down Pod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com. You can find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon, which I would like to not forget to thank profusely all of our patrons for their generous support and remind new listeners about the Patreon campaign. You can pledge a certain amount and you get extra rewards content, uh, as Shireen says, vlogs and other things. We are so grateful for your support. I'm Brenda Elsie on behalf of all of my co-hosts, Burn On and Not Out. Uh-huh.